Now can I say what a privilege and pleasure it is to be with you this evening. Um, I'm sure you're well aware of the fact that the Scots have got lots of stories about the folk from Newcastle and this area, but I wouldn't um, deign to uh, introduce myself with something like that. But I will tell you about four men who were on a life raft and um, they had abandoned all hope of being saved, so they decided that they would um, have a religious service before they became fodder for the sharks. So the uh, Welshman sang a hymn, and the Irishman prayed a great prayer, so he did, Paddy. And the Englishman preached a sermon, and the Scotsman took up a collection. <laughs> Um, I had no idea that there would be an extensive bookstall when I came uh, down here from Edinburgh this afternoon, and I've brought um, a very modest bookstall, which is the one farthest away against the wall. So ignore it and go to the Christian Institute bookstall. But um, whatever you do, if you do happen to stray towards the Rutherford House bookstall um, and you pick up a book, ask me the price, because there are the most amazing bargains there. I mean... There are 13-pound books for £3. There are £5 books for £1. And uh, it's because they're so good that um, we can sell them so cheaply. Well, now, uh, personal discipline. Um, I have to apologise, and that's a a bad way of beginning, because I thought I was going to be speaking to clergymen this evening. Um, My my work is mostly among um, ministers, Presbyterian ministers, so they are, and um, occasionally the odd Anglican drifts in and uh, <laughs> finds it a very improving experience. But um, I, I usually work with Presbyterians uh, in Scotland and Ireland and Wales and uh, with Presbyterians in South America and with Presbyterians in the Far East as well. So this is an intimidating experience to um, uh, be here in Newcastle. Um, I'm not sure that I've really understood um, very, very well the remit that I've been given this evening uh, because I'm so accustomed to speaking to ministers. So um, if you're not a minister, you've got my permission to uh, doze off and um, it may not be relevant for you. But I want to begin with a Bible base because uh, when it comes to personal discipline, um, I myself think that the shadow of the world's hand has come right across the Christian church and that we have lost so much of Christian doctrine and what God teaches us. So I want to begin right at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 and ask you what you think it means when it says that we're created in God's image. Because it says we're made in God's image, doesn't it? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our own image, male and female, created he them. And uh, you'll know, I'm sure, that there are three Hebrew words used for God's activity. There's the word made, there's the word created, and there's the word formed or fashioned. And um, we know that they have very distinctive meanings from their use elsewhere in the Old Testament. The word create is ex nihilo, from nothing. The word make is to use materials that are already there. So man was made from the dust of the earth. And the word fashion has the connotation of completing a work that has begun. A craftsman fashions something. He works on it for some time. So all three words are used of humanity 
in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and it's significant to notice that, that we were made in God's, cre- in God's image, and we were created male and female. And I wonder what you think. If I was to give you all a piece of paper and a pencil and suggest that you write down what this imago deo means, the image of God, I wonder what you would put down. Well, my way of understanding it is to depend entirely on the two chapters and to draw uh, about seven main characteristics of humanity from these chapters. And possibly the most important one is that we are made personal beings. Now, um, will you notice very carefully that... uh, The text says, God said, let us make man in our own image. I'm sure you know that the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is plural. And in Hebrew, you don't just get singular and plural the way we do. You get singular for one and dual for two and plural for three or more. And Elohim is plural. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, wherever the name God is used, The verbs are always in the singular, for God is one, except in Genesis 1 and 2, where the verbs are plural for three or more. And uh, it's very easy to see that incipiently the Trinity is present in just the first few verses of the Bible, isn't it? God created, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the spirit, the spirit, brooded over the face of the deep. And God said... God spoke and said, let there be light. And John's commentary on that is, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there you have the Trinity, the will of the Father in creation, the power of the Spirit brooding over the face of the deep, and the voice of the word of God, the second person of the Trinity. So incipiently, the Holy Trinity is in the first two or three verses of Scripture. And that perhaps explains why it says, God said, let us make man in our own image. And that tells us straight away that God is personal, but more than personal, he's interpersonal. For he is conversing, he is planning, he is working within the Trinity of three persons in one. Therefore, if we are made in his image, we are made interpersonal. We are made to have relationships with others. We're not made as individualists. Whatever you may think about her, that was the heresy of Mrs. Thatcher, individualism. But the word of God knows nothing about individualism at all. And uh, I think it's also the heresy of evangelicalism, and I speak as an evangelical. I've got my ticket, and I'm on my way to heaven. Not at all. What were the very first words that Saul of Tarsus heard from a fellow believer when he had been converted? Yes, thank you. Brother Saul. He joined a family. And uh, as believers, we are created, personal, and interpersonal. We need each other. Now, I don't want to belabor the point.
we're also created spiritual beings. Um, you'll remember that it said that in the cool of the day, God was there walking in the garden, and uh, he was looking for fellowship with the man and the woman. As Augustine has it, words that you'll have heard more often than you can count, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So we're created spiritual beings, but we're also created rational beings. I wonder if you know that um, psychologists are generally agreed that we use less than 1% of our brain's capacity during a normal lifetime. In fact, some would go as far as to say that we use less than point. 1% of our brain's capacity. Do you know that your brain has 10 billion cells, each cell capable of storing an item of information along with the emotion felt at the time when you experienced the learning process? Uh, I was a beekeeper for many years, and uh, I only have them buzzing around in my bonnet now. Um, I sold all my hives when I moved to Edinburgh. Bees have... 800 brain cells, and they use every single brain cell for their life cycle. Every single one is used. They begin as nurse bees. Each little grub bee laid by the queen bee needs 24,000 visits before it hatches out as a bee, and it starts life as a nurse, feeding with the pollen that the foragers bring in, the little grubs. And then it moves on to being a comb builder and sealing each tiny little hexagonal comb with a perfect vacuum seal. Then it moves on to being part of the whole thermostatic system of the hive. You know, on a summer's day, the hive never varies between more than two degrees um, in temperature, though outside it may begin at about 10 degrees centigrade and may move right up to 90 degrees centigrade, but the temperature in the hive remains constant because the bees move around themselves and they fan with their wings or they gather together to send convection um, round the hive and keep it exactly the right temperature. And then they move on to being guard bees, because there are robbers for every hive. Where you've got something good, you're going to have robbers. And then finally, they burn themselves out as foragers. Interesting that the males are the drones and the females are the workers. But I don't suppose that has any lessons at all for humanity, does it? <laughs> but the point is that the bee uses all 800 brain cells. But you only use 0.1% of your mind. And for myself, that's one of the strongest arguments for creation and the fall. And possibly, I'm not a botanist or a biologist or a scientist at all, possibly a a major problem for evolutionists to sort out. They say we're getting better, but if we only use 0.1% of our brains in a lifetime, do you know your brain is capable of taking 70 items of information every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every year for 80 years, and there's still to be plenty of storage space Amen. in your brain left. <laughs> Yes, there is. 
We were created rational beings. You say, where, he, where is he going? And I'm, I'm, this is where I'm going, that God brought everything that he'd made, all the plants and all the trees, all the insects, the butterflies, the birds, the animals, to the man. And he was able to name them all. He gave them a name, all of them. He could have held down before the fall a chair in ornithology and biology and zoology and botany and archaeology with ease because the massive potential of his brain was being used to the full. That's a very important point. But then he was also created a moral being. You remember God said to him, you may eat of anything, but you may not eat of the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were moral beings. They were authoritative beings. They were given the authority to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. I was on my way to Glasgow to preach about this time last year, and I heard a, I hope no one's going to be offended, but I, I, I heard a service being broadcast from a Methodist church. And, uh, oh, dear, 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 I never got down to writing to the dear man, but he said that work was a result of the fall. Rubbish. We were created working beings. They were set in the garden to work. The Hebrew word is avath, and it means to serve. And there's a verse for the ecologists. According to the rules of the garden that God had created, they were there to serve the garden, to work it in this sense of serving it, and to defend it, to keep it. Now, I don't know if it was the age of dinosaurs. I suspect it was. And I imagine that because he had that full capacity of his brain that Adam could just wave his hand and send a dinosaur away so it wouldn't trample on all the beautiful things that he was tending and caring for. That's pure speculation from the um, sort of fantasies of my mind. But they were certainly created working beings. And unemployment is the most appalling evil. We have in some of our cities generations at the third generation of no work. How devastatingly demoralizing and dehumanizing to have nothing to do. We were created for work and to enjoy it and to find in it fulfillment. And then finally, we were created aesthetic beings for we're told that the gold in that land is good, aromatic resin and onyx precious stones. Now, there's a little outline of the human personality as God created it. And uh, everything is just drawn from the text. I haven't gone to a theological book for this. It's all just extracted from the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Now, I want to make a jump from there. And uh, we'll come back to this uh, in a moment when we look at the Ephesians passage. I'm going to get myself in an awful guttle here. Do you know what a guttle is? I really needed a table or a desk or something. I want us to think about the heart. 
for a moment. We're going to be thinking about personal discipline and our walk with God. And uh, we have to think about the heart. Now, the heart in uh, the Hebrew mind, the Semitic mind, was not this organ that we have about the size and shape of our fist on the uh, left, to the left of the center of our thorax. The heart in the Hebrew mind was the whole trunk. And the mind was the top part, and the will was the next, and then the emotions were the gut. This comes out in all sorts of ways. Uh, Those of you who know Greek will know that when Jesus was moved with compassion, he saw the crowd, a sheep without a shepherd, that the Greek word means his stomach churned, it turned over. And those of you who were brought up on the authorized version will know that Paul was forever speaking about bowels of mercies. And um, it was nothing to do with the ecumenical movement. Um, It was to do with the emotions. The Hebrew word for emotions are kidneys. And it's because they thought of the emotions in the area of the solar plexus. And the translators of the King James Version just translated the word literally bowels from the Greek, or kidneys sometimes, or reins in the the book of Psalms. Um, But that is the order, mind, will, and emotions. Now, straight away, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, well, what was the head? And um, that's very important, because the Bible has a lot to say about headship. Now, I haven't been asked here to talk about the headship and... uh, the profound theology that we get in in 1 Corinthians 11 or in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where we stopped the reading this evening, but just to say that the head was the source of life. And that's why they put ashes on their head when someone died, because the fire of life had gone out, it had expired, so ashes were put on the head. But being the source of life is, is interesting, because when modern surgery has been looking around for a a definition of death, um, it hasn't been able to define death in terms of the heart stopping beating. Twice in my ministry someone's died in that sense, their heart stopped beating, and twice they've been revived by heart massage. And one man's still living, and yet for nearly 25 minutes there was no pulse. So what have the surgeons come up with? They've come up with the definition brain dead. They've actually gone back to Hebrew thinking of the head as the source of life. Now, the significance of that, uh, theologically, when it says the man is the head of the woman and Christ is the head of the man and God is the head of Christ, is responsibility. Responsibility. Leadership, responsibility, and I suppose physically the source of life too. However, it's the mind, the will, and the emotions we're thinking about. And... um, I'm going to have a little bit of trouble convincing you of this, but I hope I'll convince you of it in a moment or two. Um, Calvin understood that before the fall, the man and the woman, their mind was stamped with righteousness. They knew the mind of God. They knew what he wanted, and they knew what he didn't want. Their wills obeyed, And their emotions were fulfilled and delighted by this obedience. That's Genesis chapter 2. But then something terrible happened.
that biblical order was inverted. As the woman saw that the fruit was good and as she believed, the uh, serpent's um, lies, her passions were aroused, her desires were aroused, and she reached out and took the fruit fruit and gave it to the man. And so the God-created order of mind, will, and emotions was inverted. And instead we have the passions first in our fallen natures, and our wills weakly obey the dictates of our emotions, and our minds weakly consent to what we know to be wrong. And then you see when the Holy Spirit of God comes into us, he begins the work of restoring the image of God. And it's a long, hard job, isn't it? I think God has a struggle with us. And uh, you say, where do you get all this? Well, you get it from the whole of the New Testament and the whole Bible, really. Um, You get it in Galatians chapter 5, where it speaks about the sinful nature, which is Uh, predominantly uh, moved by the passions. And you look at the fruits of the sinful nature and see if they're not all passionate fruits. Um, And then the Spirit of God begins to work on our hearts and he wants to stamp again with righteousness our minds and to bring our wills to obey what we know through his Spirit and through his Word to be God's will. And in that, our emotions find great fulfillment. Now, one of my problems with churches today is that uh, many of them proceed on the understanding that the order after the fall is the right order. So we're in the age of feelings, aren't we? What prime minister is ever going to make a success of governing this country if he's got to depend on the feel-good factor? Mercy. God help us. Life is hard. Life is difficult. This world is racked by sin, by perversity, by crookedness, by stubbornness, by arrogance, by deceit, by sheer naked wickedness, by greed, by arrogance, by all the fruits of the flesh, the feel-good factor. But you see, that's the way we proceed. And alas, many clergy and churches organize their, they call it the worship time. We've evacuated the word worship of its biblical meaning. Very few people know what the word worship means. It means to serve, actually. It's that word avath, to work the garden. It means to be a bond slave. You don't think when the devil tempted Jesus and showed him in a vision all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you bow down and worship me, you can be lord of all these. I'll give you power over them. You don't think he was asking Jesus to sing him a song, do you? We can sing a song without worshipping. It's a matter of the will, you see. The heart, the mind and the will and the emotions and getting it in the right order too, I might say. But that's a subject perhaps for some future occasion. Now, you may not be convinced, and so I just want to make one or two comments, and I'll really have to watch the time. I want to make one or two comments um, on Ephesians. 
the passage that was read from chapter 4. Um, and I'm just going to run through it quickly and, and uh, point out to you what Paul is talking about here, or try and point out to you what, uh, in my limited understanding, Paul appears to be talking about. And notice the cognitive words uh, in verses 17, 18, um, and 19. Um, we are not to proceed as the Gentiles, meaning unbelievers, do in the futility of their thinking. Now, the authorized version has the word vanity, and it means pointlessness, unable to achieve what they're after. Now, it's always a good idea to understand uh, what Paul does not mean, and he's not saying that unbelievers um, aren't able to philosophize or compose great works of art, music, poetry, novels, um, build wonderful buildings like the Taj Mahal, built by a brutal man. Uh, he's not saying that we're not capable of these wonderful things. His topic is whether or not we can live lives of righteousness. And he is really saying in this chapter that there is no righteousness without godliness. So when it comes to finding fulfillment in life and pleasing God and being the kind of people that God created us in his image to be, those who are without God are utterly futile in their thinking. They can't get there. Then he goes on to say they are darkened in their, in their what? Their understanding. He's talking about the mind. The mind has been blacked out. They're darkened in their understanding. Um, I was in Brazil uh, last year and the year before, and uh, both times uh, was able to go to Rio, and I was very keen to see the image, the, the statue of the Christ, which is way up on Rio, is built around mountains, and there it is uh, dominating the city, a great 40 or 50-foot statue um, of the Christ. And when I landed, was met by uh, someone, I said... Um, I'm looking forward to seeing the statue of the Christ. Oh, he said, you'll see it from your bedroom window. So I got to his apartment and we looked out, but couldn't see a thing. Just clouds, thick clouds, like it was coming over the Cheviots this afternoon, a thick mist. He said, it's never like this. You can always see the statue, but do you know, the six days I was there, I never saw it once. It just poured. With, oh, it never rains in Rio. Never rains in Rio. Blue skies. It just poured with rain, poured with rain, until at last, the last day, when I was on my way back to the airport to move on to the north of Brazil, there I saw that uh, magnificent statue of the Christ dominating that city. You know, you can speak to the cleverest man. You can speak to intellectuals. You can speak to academics. You can speak to those who understand the mysteries of nature and the theory of relativity and all sorts of things. And you can explain to them the simple gospel until you're blue in the face and they can't get it. Why? Because they're darkened in their understanding. It's the understanding that's affected. They're darkened in their understanding. And yet my own mother, who's now 94 and has served God wonderfully all her life, she heard the gospel when she was five from a Christian teacher at school. Through the hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away. And she never heard it again until she went to Bible college when she was 22. Never heard it again. But she was born again when she was five. 
unless you become as little children. Darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. You'll know there are two words for life. The zoe, the life principle, and bios, biological life, and here it's zoe. And uh, it's it's the life principle of God separated from God, separated from that life principle, that spiritual life principle. Why? Because of the ignorance, a cognitive word again. Now, where does this ignorance come from? It's the hardening of their hearts. Now, he's got to the Hebrew concept of the heart, mind, will, and emotions. They are hardened solidly hardened, set in concrete against God. And then I think verse 19 is one of the most terrible verses in the whole Bible. It really is. It's utterly depressing. You've only got to step inside a video shop or a nightclub to see the truth of it. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality, emotional passions, so as to indulge in every kind of iniquity with a continual lust for more. You say, why on earth does Paul say all these terrible things? Well, I think for two reasons. One, he doesn't want us to be under any kind of doubt about the task that we have in evangelism. This is what we're up against. This is humanity. This is fallen human nature. And I think the second reason is he wants to drive us to our knees. It can only be a miracle of the Spirit of God that can bring men and women out of that condition into the sunshine of his love. But let's hurry on because that's only introductory. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Now, we've got to be careful with this word know Because Paul was a Hebrew, and he thought like a Hebrew. He was Semitic. And uh, I strongly suspect that the word know here doesn't mean in a cognitive sense at this point. You know, it says, is it Genesis chapter 5, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. So it really refers to entering into the most intimate relationship with someone. And we enter into the most intimate relationship of all with our blessed Savior. We come to know him. So it's a word here which embraces heart, the whole heart, the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's taking in the whole person, the whole man, the whole woman. And then he says, surely you heard of him. Now, hearing is certainly... Uh, going to speak to us of the mind. You heard of him, you heard words of him, the word of life, and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth. Now these are mainly cognitive words, aren't they? Heard, taught, truth. And notice, just in passing, that he uses the earthly name Jesus. It's quite common now to refer to our blessed Lord as Jesus, but I did a count a couple of years ago. This habit so irritated me. And uh, from Romans chapter 1, verse 1, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 21, there are just over about 1,203 references to the second person of the Trinity. 
and 25 of those use his earthly name. Now, the mathematicians among you can work out the percentage. But that means that 1,178 references to the second person of the Trinity give him a title. Because, you see, the early church knew that he was taken from them, he was ascended and was at the right hand of God, and that he was given a name which is above every name, and that name is not Jesus, as the choruses say. It is that Jesus is Lord, and as Lord every knee will bow before him of things in heaven, things earth, things under the earth. He is Lord. So why is he using the earthly name of Jesus here? Because he wants to say, okay, this is heavy stuff, guys, but I'm not hypothesizing, I'm not theorizing, I'm speaking about a fact of history. The second person of the Trinity broke into time and space. He walked earth's dusty pathways in Galilee. He was flesh and blood. He was one of us. God became a man, Adam, clay, the second Adam. It's fact. That's what he's saying. So you heard of him. You were taught in him in accordance with the truth as it is in Jesus. You were taught in regard to your former way of life. Now he's referring to the wrong way around, isn't he? What he's just been talking about in verses 17, 18, and 19. You were taught with regard to that. And then, here is, I think, one of the most delicious sandwiches in the Bible. The Bible's got some sandwiches in it, you know. And here we have a lovely slice of wholemeal bread, such as they, the wheat meal that they make in Northern Ireland. I had a ministry of eight and a half years in Northern Ireland, and they make the most delicious bread. They, you can't get bread like it anywhere. And you've got two lovely pieces of this and the most wonderful filling. Now, the top slice of bread is that you have to turn away from the old life. And the bottom slice is that you have to embrace the new. And uh, I can assure you without any fear of contradiction that the Greek verbs which are used here when Paul says put off the old and put on the new, these are verbs which mean an act of the will. This isn't something anyone can do for you. This is something only you can do for yourself. You have to turn deliberately and resolutely and with all your heart and with all your will, your mind having been enlightened by the truth as it is in our blessed Savior, in the historical Jesus, having heard and been taught of him, you have to turn away from the past and you have to run and hurl yourself into the arms of Christ and be locked in his embrace. And you must do it every day. Now, I don't know. Maybe in Newcastle, people are all kind of sanctified. Not like us wild Scots north of the border. But you know, I find I have to die deaths every day. Yeah, every day. I have to turn from the old. By a deliberate act of my will. And turn to Jesus Christ. Personal discipline. That's what he's talking about. Someone says, hold on, surely there's a Holy Spirit. Ah, that's the filling in the sandwich. That's the filling. Because he says, you notice, being renewed 
in the attitude of your mind. Now, the verb there is quite different to the other two verbs, putting off and putting on. That's something we have to do. It's the middle mood, something only we can do. But this verb now is passive, and it's something that's done for us. That's the clear message of the verb. It's something we can't do for ourselves, but the pneuma is the Greek word, the attitude of our mind. It means the guiding principles, the spirit of a man's mind. You know, we all have a guiding principle of our mind. My father, a few years, well, it was a number of years ago, it was in the 40s, I mean, as soon as I tell you the story, you'll realize it was a long time ago, but he climbed into a railway carriage with a man who talked for four hours. And do you know what he talked about? He was a rep. He talked about the product that he sold. Mothballs. <laughs> his mind was consumed with the wonders of his mothballs. He was trying to sell everyone in that railway carriage packets of mothballs. Not just for themselves, but for their grannies, their daughters, their cousins, their uncles, their aunts, their wider family, their friends, their neighbours. He was just obsessed with mothballs. And you know, you've only got to be with someone for a short time to very quickly discover that they've got something in their minds, a kind of guiding principle of their minds. Some people it's uncleanness. Some people it's golf or sport. or Some people it's money, money, money. But we are renewed in the pneuma, the guiding principle of our mind. Now, there's a wonderful illustration of this. If you haven't got it, go out and buy it. And read it every single year right through. A forgotten book, which to my mind is second in the English language only to Holy Scripture. And it's the Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, when Pilgrim arrives at Interpreter's House, he's taught many lessons. And one of the lessons in Interpreter's House is a fire in a grate. And there's an evil man trying to extinguish that fire. And as often as the devil throws a bucket of water on the fire to try and extinguish it, the fire appears to be going out and then up it springs again. And Christian says, how does this happen? And the interpreter takes him behind the wall and there is the Lord pouring on the oil. Why do you think I'm here tonight? Why do you think I'm not making money or in the world or doing something else? I planned a career for myself. And it certainly wasn't to be a minister. I thought ministers were wets, total wets. If you told me when I was just graduating from St. Andrew's University I was going to be a minister, I would have laughed in your face. And why after 37 years in the ordained ministry am I still here? Because the pneuma of my mind, as often as the devil seeks to extinguish it, is renewed by the Holy Spirit of God. So you see, we have this remarkable balance. The determination, the ever deeper repentance that must be worked in each one of us, negatively as we turn away from all that we know to be wrong, and positively as we embrace what we know to be true, in embracing Christ himself, and we can only do that because, praise be to his name, we have his spirit within us and he is renewing us all the time. 
Now, it's been a long journey, but I don't mean from Edinburgh to Newcastle, I mean in this passage. But at last we've come to where we're going. Created, we're back to the image of God. Have you seen this before? We were created to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. So you see, we're back to the heart and the mind being on top and the will obeying the word of God and the emotions finding all their fulfillment in that obedience. We're whole persons. You can't detach your mind from your will, nor can you detach your will from your emotions, nor your emotions from your mind. We're a unity, but there's a God-given order, and in that God-given order, the will must obey. There's no Christian life without the cross. I do preaching workshops with ministers and uh, I get more and more severe with them, you know, because the time is short. I have only five years before they'll put me to one side and kind of put me into cold storage and pension me off. So I was with some guys in Ireland recently and this chap preached a pre-communion sermon. Presbyterians have pre-communion sermons. And he was telling them all to patch up their bad relationships when you bring your gift to the altar and all the rest of it. And it was all very good. And uh, when he'd finished, I said, Davy boy, that was sheer moralism. Where was the cross? Where was the cross? And you know, our sermonizing and our talks on sanctification can become sloppy, sentimental bosh. There is no gain but by a loss. You cannot say but by the cross. The corn of wheat to multiply must fall into the ground and... Die. Oh, should a soul alone remain when it a hundredfold can gain? Do you know the second verse of that? Whenever you ripe fields behold waving to God their sheaves of gold, be sure some corn of wheat has died, some saintly soul been crucified, someone has suffered, wept, and prayed. And fought hell's legions undismayed. See, there has to be that act of the will. No feel-good factor. That'll come in place. If you want to increase your congregation's adoration and praise of God, then bring them into the deep things of God. And the more our minds are developed, by the Holy Spirit to grasp the mighty doctrines of Scripture, the deeper will be our praise and the greater our appreciation and the more profound our emotions as we bring our adoration before the majesty of him with whom we have to do. Now, how am I going to apply um, some of this? I want to talk to you a little bit about the mind. And I wanted to have a biblical base to start with. (coughs) Because our subject this evening is personal discipline. And what I'm going to share with you now, what I'm going to share with you now is just a little bit of my own kind of spiritual pilgrimage uh, in these things. And uh, I want you to... uh, No, I think I've got that in the wrong order, actually. But it doesn't matter. We'll talk about it. Um... Your mind, 
is composed of three parts. The subconscious, which holds these millions of items of information, plus the emotion you felt at the moment of your experience. And uh, the storage system can be pretty haphazard. It can be a bit of a jumble. We'll come to that in a moment. Your conscious mind can only think comfortably of one thing at a time. If you're trying to do two things at once, you get very tired. For example, if you're a translator and you're translating someone speaking in another language, it's very exhausting. The guy who speaks for an hour, he just does the one thing. But the man who's translating for an hour is doing two things, and that's very draining. So we think comfortably in in one area. The pre-conscious can be trained to handle seven areas, plus or minus two. Now, we'll come back to that. What I say to my ministers that um, I, I have coming to my seminars is that so many of us use our brains wrongly. Now, my subject this evening is personal discipline. We use our brains wrongly, and as a result, we get tired easily, a little knocks us out. We don't read fast enough when we're in our studies. We drag our way through the paragraphs. We can suffer from headaches, from migraines, or from tension headaches, and they're quite different, though tension is a factor in migraine. We can even develop ulcers and digestive problems. We quarrel with our families. We quarrel with our colleagues. We find self-control difficult and we become short-tempered, and we forget what we ought to be doing. We lose our concentration. Because, in fact, we're using our minds wrongly. And what God's people need to learn to do, and remember how the Lord said the sons of this generation are wiser than the sons of light. I think that's Luke 16, verse 7, isn't it? We urgently need to learn to use the mind God has given us which is created to be in true holiness and righteousness. We need to learn to be more creative, to improve our memories, to avoid tiredness and stress, to develop a much deeper and better sleep pattern, to improve our relaxation, to have an overview of our work, to learn self-discipline and to improve communication with family and with friends. Now... Um, I'm going to skip a fair bit of what I've got here. You might find it interesting, but um, I think I haven't got time for it. But I want us to try and understand a little bit uh, more specifically the way we use our minds. Now, here was David Searle a few years ago. And uh, this may ring a bell for some of you. Here's the first floor, the conscious, you see. And uh, the ground floor of the house, and the figure comes again from uh, Pilgrim's uh, John, John Bunyan, the holy war, man's soul. He sees us as a dwelling, and of course the scripture sees us as a dwelling as well. The ground floor is the pre-conscious, and the basement is the subconscious, and it's just packed with all sorts of material. Now, I don't know about you, but um, if you sit at a desk and you're a minister, um, the telephone goes and you've got your book on Nehemiah by Packer. It's on the bookstall there, (laughs) open, and you're trying to grapple with um, something for Sunday, and you're trying to get down to God's Word, and the phone goes, and, um, oh, it's your, we call them beetles in Scotland. It's not a dog, it's a church officer, and he tells you there's a leaking radiator in the church, and could you do something about that, and 
you need authority to call a plumber in. And he's put a, an ice cream carton underneath it to catch the drips, but it's filling up. And then your wife opens the study and says there's been a row with a next-door neighbour over a musical instrument that your kid has from school. And um, then the phone goes again, and it's someone else. And your brain is getting a little bit like, as you get back to study, like that eruption from your subconscious, all these things being thrown up. And you find concentration difficult. You find personal discipline difficult. You find it hard to work out. Well, I have to say that I staggered along for about 15 years in the ministry, and that was pretty much a picture of my mind, you know. Um, I didn't want it to be like that, but I didn't seem to be able to control it. That's just the way it seemed to work. It was really very irritating. Now, this is what I hope I'm going to be like. (laughs) And this is the way I think God wanted us to be. Now, what's happened here is that the subconscious has got a structure. Everything has been worked out. And everything is docketed. It's all neatly filed. And the pre-conscious works a sort of system called time management. That's the TM. It's not transcendental meditation. (laughs) It's time management. And the pre-conscious is working in these seven areas plus two. And it has learned to bring into the conscious, the first floor office, exactly what is needed at exactly the right time. Now you say, how on earth do you do that? How do you do it? You can. Everyone can do it. And I think ministers need to do it particularly. And uh, I say ministers need to do it particularly because the clergy, you see, don't have a, a normal day. I mean, the guy who works for, well, it used to be British Rail, but one of these various conglomerates, I can never follow this, um, LNER or whatever it is, or the Great Northern Railway. Um, He goes and he's got his railway timetables there and people come and he looks them up and he knows exactly what to do and his mind goes along those grooves, you see, like a a railway engine going along a track. But his mind tends to atrophy. I had one of my leading elders in Presbyterianism. We have elders, you see, we're biblical presbyteroi. And... um, He was a manager of bank managers, and he was brilliant when it came to figures and stocks and shares and bank management and so on. But put a simple problem to him, and he just, his mouth fell open, and he didn't know what to do. Because he was on a railway line, he was on a railway track, and he could go fast along that track, but get him off the track, and he was lost. But you see, ministers may have a school service, they'll have a funeral, they'll have someone calling about a baptism or christening, do you call it? We call it baptism north of the border. And um, biblical again. (laughs) He'll be trying to prepare his sermons. He'll have people who are ill. He'll have committees to work with. He'll have youth organizations. And uh, he's like someone in a circus trying to keep a whole lot of plates spinning on a whole lot of poles. And here he's got these spinning and then one begins to go off the pole here and he's got to run and give it a wee spin or he's like a juggler juggling all these things and trying to keep them going all the time 
And uh, it's, it's a vocation that God calls us to. And uh, if he's not careful, he can degenerate into running a church. Any clergy here, do you know what I mean? You see, you've got to run the church, but your main job is the cure of souls. And uh, the great danger for us who are called to preach the word of God is that our indiscipline is such that we only deal with the cure of souls on the Lord's Day, and then from Monday to Saturday we're like someone trying to cross a street in Delhi. (laughs) And I was there a fortnight ago, that's why I'm saying that. You see thousands of scooters with five on them at a time and rickshaws with eight in them and they were built for two. And uh, camel carts and buffaloes wandering across the road and pigs and all kinds of things. It's just horrendous. Um, And you try and cross the road and honestly, you could be shot in the heart and you wouldn't die because your heart's in your mouth. (laughs) 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 But you see, running a church can be like that. And the analogy that I would draw is between running a house and creating a home. And so, so often, um, I, I don't know whether those who are not in the ministry have the same problem. There's an illustration that um, I sometimes use, and it's for the preconscious to try and help you to understand it. It's driving a car. Those who drive a car along the same route often... Um, they can hand over the driving of the car to the preconscious. Have you ever set off home and you've had a passenger and you've been talking to them or you've been concentrating on something and you drive in the drive and you don't remember driving? You've actually handed over to your preconscious. Now, I wonder if you know that the old cars that were around in the 30s, the 20s and 30s, um, they weren't easy. It wasn't easy to drive them like that because the controls weren't arranged in a group of seven. But nowadays they're arranged in a group of seven. You've got the steering wheel one. You've got the controls on the right side of the column two. You've got the controls on the left side three. You've got the foot pedals four. You've got the dials and switches on the fascia five. You've got the gear lever six and the mirror seven. And it's been discovered that the human mind, the preconscious, can be trained to operate almost automatically in seven areas, plus or minus two. Some people only five. Um, Just below average, seven. Average and above average, nine. But comfortably, seven. So what we need is a structure, you see, and uh, what we've got here is a simple structure. So... I don't know what your work is, but um, I'm going to address myself for a moment to ministers. And say that you will need to develop a structure of seven items uh, plus another two. And these are just examples drawn from my my own particular uh, time management staff is area one. These are called key areas. Um, Preaching, preparation, study, books, area two. The committees that I'm on and have to chair and convene, three. Projects, four. Organizations in the church, five. Pastoral work, which would take in funerals, hospitals, ill people, and so on, six. And administration, seven. And then my own personal development, eight, and my family, Nine. 
Now, your structure has to cover your whole life. And you have to divide into these seven main areas all your work, absolutely everything. It takes about six months to do by trial and error. And then you can break down uh, all these divisions. Um, you can subdivide them into uh, what we would call activities. And I'll take just one of those. I'll take um, the committees. And here are just some of the committees in which I was involved as a, a minister. Some of the committees. A worship committee, a fellowship committee, a youth committee, a finance committee, a business committee. Now, that's just for starters, really. Um, God so loved the world that he did not send a committee. But um, we have to work with our fellow Christians, and this is part of the running of the church, and it has to be done. And sometimes it can be wearisome. So these are activities of one particular branch, one particular key area. And then the activities themselves are broken down into tasks. And I'll give you one example of this. So we'll take the youth committee, and it's subdivided. Remember, committees was uh, area three. And... Um, then I've got 3-1, um, 3-2, three, 3-3, three, 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 and so on. And here is 3-3, three, three, the youth committee. And I'm thinking about the Christmas party, the summer outing, a bonfire on November the 5th, a sponsorship thing, and so on. So I've subdivided again. Now, I'm just trying to illustrate to you the kind of structure and discipline that I'm talking about. And uh, this structure and discipline has to be worked into my whole life and I'm applying my mind, and I'm going to learn these seven areas so that I can operate in them without thinking, the way I can drive almost without thinking. They become second nature. The illustration is of a Christmas tree. You are the trunk... The seven key areas are your work. The, um, that's, that's the branches. The twigs down there on the bottom left are the activities. And then the pine needle, needles on the twigs are the tasks. And uh, if you do that and develop a diary system uh, which has these divisions for you, then you'll find that after about six months to a year, you're getting into a rhythm and you're organizing yourself. Do you know, I've proved by experience that you can increase your service to God by at least 20% by having a structure that you keep to. You look back and uh, read the biographies of all the men whom God used and the women God blessed and enriched, and you'll find they had a structure. They were disciplined. Now, go back to our Ephesians passage. It has to be an act of the will. We have to set about it in a businesslike way. We have to know when to turn the television on and when to turn it off. Ultimately, our leisure becomes sacred. Because our very leisure and relaxation is in order to re-equip us to serve our God 
so that we can milk the very last drop of energy from ourselves for his glory and for his service. And yet, it can only happen as we're being renewed in righteousness and holiness as we were created to be. Now, my time has run, and I was going to go on and speak about uh, Bible study, but um, I've gone on a little bit too much. And uh, I was going to try and suggest methods of uh, different passages of Scripture, different books of the Bible. Just a little longer. Okay. Well, one last acetate to show you. kind of clock by which you function. Uh, my clock is that I'm best uh, during the morning. My wife's clock is that she's best in the evening. Um, Confucius said to listen to music and wife at the same time is not to lead harmonious life. But <laughs> we all need a break in the middle of the day sometime around one o'clock, and we need a break um, in the evening, sometime between five and seven, so that we can gather our resources again for the evening work, if we work in the evening, as, as clergy in, invariably do. And uh, we have to take the highs in our day to do the important things, and we have to use the lows to do the less important things. So we have to organize ourselves in an intelligent way and realize that we have this daily cycle and use the best time for God to get to know him, to grapple with his word and to use the time when we're needing to relax a bit to make those phone calls and do the running of the church. But the cure of souls, the best time. Now, come to God's word for a moment. I'll just put one, my final acetate up and uh, switch it on right at the end. And I have to say it is for, for male clergy, the last one. I, if I'd realized there were going to be so many ladies here, I would have changed the terminology a little, but I think you'll understand. Um, when you come to study your Bible, I suppose Scripture Union notes are very helpful for some people. Um, but personally, I found them a little bit blessed thoughtish. Do you know what I mean? Um, a, a wee blessed thought. And um, that's okay. You feed your soul, and, and we need to feed our souls like that. But years and years and years ago, my life was changed by my godly mother, who gave me a book for my 21st birthday called Guide to the Gospels by Graham Scroggy. Now, Graham Scroggy's not read any longer. Um, but I, I was at university at the time, and I felt convicted that I was spending eight hours a day studying medieval history and philosophy and Latin, and um, that I was spending ten minutes a day reading my Bible. And I thought, there's something wrong here. I'm spending all this time reading all this rubbish, um, and here is the Word of God, and it's getting 10 minutes a day. So I made a resolution that I would put aside Sunday afternoon to study the word of God. 
So I locked my door on Sunday afternoon. I spent about two and a half to three hours with that book. And it was very analytical. It analyzed all the parables, all the miracles. It showed the pattern of the gospel, the relationship of each gospel to the Old Testament, the citations from the Old Testament. It showed that Matthew was written in Jerusalem for the Jews and that Luke was written in Antioch for the Greeks and that flavored the way he arranged his material. Mark was written in Rome, probably Peter's gospel set down by, by Mark and it was for a practical people and John was written in Ephesus for the church. And that we have four different views of Christ presented to four different cultures and for four different reasons. And I worked my way through that book, and you know, something happened to me. I walked the dusty pathways of Galilee with Christ. I sat by the seashore and I heard his teaching. How do you get to know someone? How do you get to know them? You don't know them until you marry them and live with them, do you? The guy thinks he knows the girl, but my word, the one he married was not the girl that he courted. <laughs> Vice versa is true. The man you married was quite different, living with someone, watching their reactions when they eat, when the phone goes and they're hassled, when the kids are squalling, how they react there, when you're under pressure, when you've got time to be, how do you react? And so how do you get to know Christ? With blessed thoughts? No, by living with him. By watching him, by seeing how he reacts, by listening. By seeing his dealings with people. By seeing how divinely original he is. By saturating yourself in his word. And so my life was changed. And at the young age of 21, 22, I discovered that the word of God was to be mastered and studied in depth and that my mind had to be stretched and expanded. And it became my passion through my mother's prayers to become a man of the word. Do you know, after these years in the ministry, the depressing thing for me is that to preach through the Bible in any kind of depth would take 150 years. The longer one is with this book, the more one realizes that one's knowledge is just beginning. That brain of yours, 0.1% of it used, how well do you know the prophets? How well do you know the book of Malachi or Amos or Zechariah, those visions? Do you know them all? Can you make the bridge from the 5th century BC to the 20th century in the year of our Lord. So what I'm going to say to you about Bible study is that I think you should take a book, maybe a gospel, it may be a minor prophet. You might want to start with the book of Jeremiah. Maybe Psalms. Do you know the riches there are in Psalms? Do you know there are nine different type, basic types of parallelism? in the Psalms. The poetry of the Psalms is highly sophisticated, though most of it was produced in the Stone Age. In the day when David flushed and his face ablaze, the adrenaline flowing, the perspiration pouring down his face, dragging Goliath's great sword after him, 
and holding his head by the hair and all the blood spattering over his legs. Stone Age. Wild stuff. And yet he could write the most exquisite poetry. Do you know anything about parallelism? You know, English poetry isn't like Hebrew poetry. English poetry depends on rhythm and rhyme. Come and trip it as you go on the light fantastic toe. In thy right hand bring with thee jest and youthful jollity. Quips and cranks and nods and smiles. Wreathed becks and wanton wiles. There's a rhythm. Or the Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in silver and gold. Lord Byron, you'll remember it from your school days. Rhythm and rhyme. But not so. Hebrew poetry. The poetry, its essence is in the line being repeated with a little more added to the picture. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enlightening the eyes, and so on. Parallelism, a parallelism of meaning. And you see, although David lived in the Stone Age and the Israelites in his day hadn't even discovered how to smelt iron, there were no smiths in the land. The Philistines had discovered it, and the Phoenicians had discovered it, but not the Israelites. He could write the most sophisticated poetry, which in the amazing providence of God could be translated into any language, and the poetic form not be lost. Did you do, syllog- uh, did you do um, sonnets when you were at school? A, B, B, C, A, B, B, C, D, E, D, E, the rhyme scheme. You get exactly the same pattern very sophisticated in the Psalms. A, B, C, C, B, A, D, E, F, E, F, D. And to crack that open leads you into a whole new world of the most beautiful literature that has ever been written and enables you to begin to understand the Psalms. So when you're reading the Psalms, divide them up, appreciate the poetry, give them headings, work out your own heading for each psalm, write it in your Bible, sum up the meaning of it, stay with it, stay with it for two or three days until you've grasped the essence and God has spoken to you. And put in subdivisions so that you've got the meaning. Get a big Bible so you can write in it and write neatly. And when you go on to one of the prophets, Get a couple of commentaries, not ones that go into the Greek and the Hebrew, but commentaries which are going to give you the background and show you its place in the whole overview of Scripture. And do the same with the Gospels. Or that letter of Ephesians from which we read, it is the most amazing piece of work. What a mind this man had. Get inside his mind. First of all, give yourself an overview of the whole thing. And when you've got an overview of it and the main headings, then study each part and see how they relate together. And I'll finish with this. Um, one, of the, one of the disciplines of scripture which is neglected more than any other is biblical theology. Now, I don't just mean the theology of the Bible. I mean biblical theology. The ministers here will know what I'm talking about, the theologians, as opposed to systematic theology. Systematic theology is thematic. It deals with the great doctrines like God, man, sin, salvation, Israel, the church, and so on. It takes themes 
topics. It's thematic. Biblical theology is chronological. Now, I want you to imagine that on that wall we have a portrait, say, of Her Majesty and Prince Philip to commemorate the 50th wedding anniversary that they've just had. And um, some Lord Lieutenant of the county, if you still have those, we have them in Scotland, is coming and we're going to unveil this plaque. Maybe even Her Majesty herself is coming and she stands at the side and some speeches are made and then the great moment comes and she takes the cord and she pulls the curtains and slowly the portrait is revealed. First of all, you just see the nose and then you see a little bit of the face and the eyes until finally the curtains go back and you see the full portrait. That's what's happening in the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and it's finally finally complete at the end of Revelation chapter 22. A portrait of God is being revealed. There's a development, a progression, a cumulative effect until finally we see the full glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The knowledge of the glory of God in his face Now, you've got to learn to trace that process. See, Abraham knew far less about God than you knew. You know. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have the promises of Isaiah. He didn't have the full revelation of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. Far less all the doctrines set out by Paul in the letter to the Romans and the Ephesians. Far less the apocalyptic visions of Revelation. You've got it all. The revelation is complete. It's there to be read. It's there to be studied. Not just in little sound bites. But meat for those who are mature. So that by constant use you train yourself. So we finish then with our minds. I'm sorry to major so much on the mind. I sometimes get it out of balance. It's a caricature. I say again, we're a unity, mind, will, and emotions. And what is the secret of it all? There is a secret, you know. And it's one word. L-O-V. L-O-V-E. Love. And what I say to my ministers is not C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. Wonderful book. But the three loves, and this is where I have to apologise to the ladies, I should have had spouse stoned. I'm sorry. Love of God, love of wife, and love of his church. So do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy him? Do you snuggle up to him at night? And yet recognise that he is the eternal one, who inhabits the heavens and measures space with the span of his hand. We pray to the Almighty nowadays instead of to the Almighty. You have to balance the transcendence of God with his imminence, his otherness with his nearness. Oh, how I fear thee, living God with deepest, tenderest fears. And then love of family, the one whom God has joined you to, and if you're single... Then I've got a couple of books for you on the bookstall. (laughs) One called Truth and Love and uh, one called God's Sexuality and Family. And I've got a chapter in both of them on singleness. 
But Jesus was single and perfectly fulfilled. And as the first Adam was told to be fruitful and multiply, we have a choice in the second Adam. A choice to accept our singleness and to surrender it to God for his glory. And then love of his church. How can you love Jesus Christ without loving his church? The church is his body. It is Jesus. This church here is Jesus Christ in this community. So it all boils down, doesn't it, to love. Son, daughter, give me your heart. And where is our love? May our love be for our God, for those he's entrusted to us, and for his church. Thank you for being such an attentive audience. And thank you too, David, for uh, giving us so much tonight. It, uh, in some ways, it, it seems superfluous to say anything more or simply to talk for the sake of talking. On the other hand, we have a few minutes um, before we conclude with some announcements. And it may be that uh, there are one or two things that you would like David to develop further if you want to do that or to clarify something he said or to make a comment and uh, while I break the tension uh, uh, do implore the Irish in our midst today to make sure that certainly by Wednesday I have some of those sandwiches um, we have some Northern Irish here tonight we do but we haven't yet seen the sandwiches <laughs> at least I haven't anyone like to uh, to say anything or to to make a comment or or to ask a question. We've got about ten minutes left. Well, perhaps um, I could say that uh, this is yet another sort of method that I've come across as to how to order my life. Um, there's just so many uh, umpteen different uh, methods that, in fact, uh, um, one hears. And, uh, sometimes I think one can become... Uh, sort of almost feel very demoralized at times with the amount of uh, different things that are actually uh, set out for us. But certainly I, I much appreciate what uh, Mr. Sowers has given us to tonight, particularly with the emphasis on mind, will, and emotion. It's important to have that at the forefront of any ordering uh, that we're involved in. Thank you for that comment, Tim. Yes. I'd just like to say in relation to your comment uh, sir, on uh, biblical theology, I've been going through this past year uh, through Selwyn uh, Hughes' book on Through the Bible in One Year. And he does this in a chronological sequence. It's quite a, a full sequence. And you can make as much of it or as little of it as you want. Um, I'm almost at the end of it now. And it says as you're coming towards the end of the, the year's readings, that as you say, you, you suddenly see the, the, the greatness and the wonder and the, the loveliness of Christ. And I can recommend it to anybody who, is, who hasn't done it before to actually go through the Bible in such a way. 
It's a good question, but it's the whole pattern of Scripture. I mean, just take the Ephesian letter itself. The first three chapters are basically exposition, what God has done for us. The first chapter is basically Trinitarian. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. Um, The chapters 4, 5, and 6 are exhortation. Therefore, on the basis of what God has done for you, now what you must do. Romans is the same. First eight chapters are exposition, and then he goes into the historical interlude, Israel 9, 10, 11, and then chapter 12. Therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, present your bodies, living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world. We're not conformists. But be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. Or Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. You know, there are plenty of imperatives in scripture. And while Major Thomas, whom I only ever heard once do you know, I did the daftest thing. I went to Keswick for my honeymoon. <laughs> but there was a reason for that. I was asked to be a free member of the London Bible College house party. So, <laughs> However, I heard him there in the open air. Um, 
that what he's emphasizing is the, the doctrine of total depravity. But then in salvation, God is beginning this work of renewing his image in us. And so our minds are to be renewed and our wills must learn to obey. And I'm sure if Major Thomas was here, he would say, Amen. You can't emphasize total depravity so much that you know perfectly well that um, when it comes to getting to church, you don't lie there and say, now the Holy Spirit is going to teleport me to church. You've got to get up in time and shave and dress and bathe yourself and have your breakfast and drive there. There's got to be an act of the will. So Paul says in Colossians 1.29, So therefore I strive mightily. Agonizo is the Greek word. Agonize. With all the power which he inspires in me. So you have this perfect blending. You see, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So it's like the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. They somehow blend in the Christian. And that sandwich I gave you, put off the old, put on the new, because you're being renewed in your mind. See, the old nature is still there. And over in the spectrum, that, in the Christian, it is. That's right. That's why we have to put off the old and embrace the new, because the old nature is still there. We look, look to the Lord. It's the spirit Yes. Gives us this power. yes, yes, he gives us this power, but we've still got wills that we have to exercise, at least I do. I have, I have to. You take hold of a hand and you'd like to hold on to it, but you have to let it go. Do you think that that is a problem in evangelical circles, that we tend to hold the divine and the human too far apart? And we need to remember that God was very God and man and very man. Yes. Yes, the humanity of Christ is a neglected doctrine of this century, isn't it? People said it was the Holy Spirit, but wasn't it the humanity of Christ? That perfect blend of manhood, perfect of man. personhood. Perfect man. Still a perfect man. That's right, yes. Eternally man for us. That's a very good comment, and uh, you're touching on a very, very profound truth and part of sanctification, which I think isn't taught enough. But um, you can't be morbid over human depravity. I mean, we're redeemed. And uh, the Lord wants us to be more and more human, in the best sense of the word, like Jesus, Christ. I mean, we use the word human in a bad sense. We say to her, is human to forgive divine, Alexander Pope. And uh, we say, oh, well, it's, he's only human, you know, and that's what you expect. But we use the word human in a good sense, and... God wants us to be human in that sense. Scottish Presbyterians, do they not have a, a reputation for morbidity? <laughs> <laughs> These things right now to you, little children, that your joy may be full. Have I been morbid this evening? No. <laughs> <laughs> Throw a tomato at him. 